if you're not doing financial planning, you're probably not their primary advisor or you won't be for long. To become a trusted advisor is to be more than just the investment person. Bring your team approach in there. Do everything for that customer. Their business consistently grow year over year as they introduce new ideas and new concepts to those same customers. It makes their experience where you can't leave them. What they provide is you don't really care about the products that you're in. You just care that they know everything about you. To make some changes, it's more than just incentive plans. It's behavioral changes. It's mindset changes. Your process is your product, and that's just so well put. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. This month, we are joined by Pete Dunlap of Citizens Bank, Jim Fujinaga of Hancock Whitney, and Kyle Stroud of Sentinel Bank. In addition to industry trends, our panel discusses client segmentation, rep force tiering, increasing financial planning, working in the bank, and becoming a trusted advisor. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Staffist Partners and the creator of BankChannelResearch.com, here with highlights from May of 2021, which was a formidable rebound compared to May of 2020. Managed money business grew by 25%, and sales revenue from annuities and mutual funds doubled, launching FC productivity 40% above the dismal May of 2020. Total FC productivity topped $40,000, which is a new high for the month of May. Historically, total production and financial consultant revenue drops about 20% from April to May. This year was no different, with both figures down 20% for the month. The major factor is a drop in managed money fees, which tend to plunge 30% after the first month of the quarter, when most programs collect quarterly fees. I'd like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing much of the valuable data needed for this analysis, and now I will turn it over to Scott and Bob. 
Hello and welcome to BISA Trend Watch, where each month we discuss our channel's trends and initiatives that are improving program performance. I am Scott Stathis and I will be your host along with Bob Mattel. This podcast is jointly produced by BISA and Stathis Mattel, and our sponsoring partner is the Ameriprise Financial Institution Group, who we are lucky enough to partner with. So we are joined today by three thought leaders who will each introduce themselves. But first, I'd like to let our co-host, Bob Mattel, introduce himself. Bob will then pass it on for the others to introduce themselves. Bob? Well, thanks so much, Scott. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. So can you believe it? This is the one-year anniversary of this series. We started with the first BISA Trend Watch in June of last year with Mike Mirabali from Huntington and John Illyrio from Webster. Today, we have three more participants joining us. So let's learn who they are. Pete. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It's Pete Dunlap with Citizens Securities, a part of Citizens Bank. I'm the president of Citizen Securities. We have 430 advisors covering 13 states. We have uh, 45 of those advisors are upstairs, what we refer to as senior advisors. We also have 130 they're not platform bankers, but we call them premier bankers, really specialize in the affluent space or fully licensed bankers that are part of our program. We have $8 billion in managed money AUM and about $24 billion in AUA. Total revenues are projected at about $190 million this year, which is uh, about a 22% increase over last year. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Scott, for having me on. It's Jim Fujinaga, the president and CEO of Hancock Whitney Investment Services. We're in the Gulf South. We are in five states, from Texas to Florida. Louisiana, New Orleans is one of our headquarters. The other one is in Gulfport, Mississippi. And then obviously, we're in Alabama as we surround the Gulf there. We have 48 financial advisors of which nine are senior investment consultants. They're outside of the branches in our wealth teams and hubs. We have 23 senior FAs and 16 FAs for again, total 48. We have about 130 licensed bankers today. Our AUMs are at $5.8 billion and our annual revenues are at around $28 million this year. Well, thanks Jim and for those listening in, Jim was actually on our first ever podcast, Lessons Learned from Working the COVID Crisis Remotely, which was posted on June 5th, 2020, for those um, history buffs out there. Well, with that said, let's meet Kyle. Hi, Kyle Stroud. Looks like I'm the, the small one of the bunch here. I'm with Centennial Financial Services, which is an affiliate of Centennial Bank, which is headquartered out of Conway, Arkansas. Then. $18 billion institution. We have about 175 branches spread out between Arkansas and Florida. The investment group is made up of 17 financial advisors. And there is one basically licensed branch employee that also does some other business development work for the bank. But out of those 17 advisors, we have just under $1 billion in AUM, 200 and 75 million of that is in fee base. A year ago, we had about 630 million in AUM and only 70 million of that was in fee base. So we've come a long way in the last year with about a 54% increase in AUM 
and almost a 300% increase in fee-based. So I'm real proud of that stat. We were on track to do around $5 million this year in GDC. And last year, we finished at 2.9 through somewhat of a still conversion year. because We've only been with Ameriprise for uh, just over two years now. Well, Kyle, that is some fantastic growth. I am sure Scott and I are going to ask you exactly how that became what it is. So uh, thanks so much for that overview. All right. Well, let's get right into it. This is the BISA Trend Watch. So let's find out what's going on in the trends. As we look at the data coming in from May, we definitely beat May of last year. Well, but that's not hard to beat. We're we're just trying to stay open last May at this point. Uh, May 2021 was not as good as April, but the quarterly asset management fees are always collected in April. So we can understand that. But if we compare May to the months outside those months that we actually collect quarterly asset fees, May 2021 was one of the best months in the past 12. So I just threw a lot out there. Pete, why don't you kick us off with how does that compare to your program and what's the trend for the rest of the year? I think the trend for the rest of the year is pretty positive. We have uh, good momentum. Pipelines are really, really strong. Customers seem to be very engaged. You know, I, I think June will be as good as May and July, I think, will be as, as good as we would have expected for a summer month. A little bit more concerned about August as things begin to change on the interest rate landscape, but we'll see how that develops. I think year over year, the adoption of the technology really has, has helped us sort of transform the business. And I think our advisors are a lot more efficient. They've got more capacity. They're, they're holding more appointments. They, they're certainly getting things done quicker. And I think that's just helped improve the overall landscape of, of the investment business. So other than knock on wood, we've had really good market support for our business in the last you know six, eight months. We're certainly very pleased with the activity levels and the year-over-year improvement in, in efficiency. How's the referral stream going? Is that coming back to normal? It certainly is. The branch traffic has gotten a little bit better. But again, I think we've seen a lot of customers adapting to technology as well. But we're, we're reaching out, you know, trying to reach out to customers in different ways. And then, you know, customers are reaching out to us in different ways. And so we're getting fair share of referrals at this point. Great. So, Jim, what's going on at Hancock? Well, I agree with Pete in terms of my optimism for the rest of this year. I think we're in a good position right now. Obviously, things could change in the economy. But even if rates go up, there's still that delta between what the bank offers and what you could provide as an investment alternative for our customers. So I feel really positive in that area. The other area for us that's really worked is or focus on building a recurring revenue business. When I first came on board here, about four and a half, well, almost five years, we were in the single digits in terms of our managed money business as a percentage of our overall product mix. And now, you know, we're close to 40% and 48% of our business is recurring. So it's been a big change in the way we've done business over the past several years. And we really focused on measuring certain areas of our business to get there. We measure the number of proposals we do in managed money. We measure the financial plan activity that we have going on. Our focus is to get every advisor to do at least four plans a month, one a week. It's not that much to ask for. Remember, when you started from zero, it's a big leap. So we're seeing that happen. And lastly, we're really focused on measuring proposals in life insurance. 
And now we have a healthy pipeline of life insurance opportunities that we didn't have last year. So we're seeing growth. And so our expectation is that the rest of the year be pretty positive. That buzzword hits me all the time, insurance. And Scott's going to say, okay, you see, we always get an insurance question in there. So I need to know more about that. I mean, I love the fact that you're doing all these financial plans, but I'm sure that's also helping generate a lot of the insurance business. It is. But what's interesting, is, as you probably know, is that financial plans are ideal for life insurance. Yet, why is it that most of them focus on the retirement plan aspect and go right into an asset allocation model generating managed money, which is great because that's what we want to do. But we're focused now on the second sale solution because when you take a look at all the plans that we've done and we notice that we've seen a high rate of correlation between managed money business and financial plans, yet why haven't we seen that with life insurance? Your clients are telling you how much life insurance they need. So now we're really focused on the second sale solution. We've done four a month with 40 plus reps. That's you know, 200 plans a month, including our wealth advisors on our wealth team, 2,000 plans a year. So look at all the opportunities you have to go back and do second sale conversations and really focus on risk management. The other area, Bob, that we're really focused on now and getting a lot of interest with our high net worth clients is the estate planning proposals and the potential tax law changes that are going on there. We have estate planning attorneys that are wealth advisors, and we're doing client seminars and other types of activities to get that interest. And from there, you'll have opportunities to do life insurance and protection. Hey, Jim, let me ask you a question because, you know, this is a life insurance thing. Like Bob said, it's a hot button for him. And it's also a passion for me because I always say if we're helping our clients grow their assets, but not helping them protect their assets, we're only doing half of our job. So that second sale opportunity, you can talk about a second sale opportunity until you're blue in the face and most advisors aren't going to follow up on it, but it looks like you're getting follow up, right? So did you put a specific structure in place to get your advisors to act on that second sale opportunity? Is it policy review? Give us the details of the initiative that is actually moving the needle. Well, the first part of the initiative is really metrics and measuring the amount of proposals that we see in the system. Every week, everybody sees how much revenue they're doing, how many plans, and how many uh, proposals they have for managed money, and how many proposals we see in life insurance. We didn't measure life insurance in that way in the past. We did with managed money and we saw results. If we generate 400 proposals in a quarter for managed money, you know, at $130 million in volume, we'll see a percentage of that business going in, like 42%. So we know that we have the metrics to measure managed money. We turned that into life insurance and started figuring out, okay, how many proposals do we need to do a number of life insurance deals that we like to get to? We want to get to you know at least 10% of our overall business and life insurance. We've got some work to do in that area. So we work backwards with the math to determine how much we need to do to do that. Number two, in terms of the financial planning second sell solution, that's just a major initiative and campaign for our organization. We're talking to our reps, our sales managers are, our life insurance specialist is, our financial planning team is. We have a centralized planning team. So we're all focused on that. And we're making everything a big deal. And lastly, we have a scorecard every quarter that we measure life insurance and financial plan. Those are the only two criteria that we have in our quarterly scorecard for our financial advisors. And we look at that and that it does go toward incentives as well. 
All right. So if they hit the metrics on the scorecard, then they get a percentage bonus for that quarter or whatever, right? And if they don't hit it, they get less of it. And they can get partial if they hit one and not the other. Is that essentially the way it works? It is. You get two different sides of the scorecard and you could do well on one side and not well on the others. But if you want to maximize it, you got to be at the top. Nice. I like it. Well, congratulations on moving the needle with insurance because that's been notoriously hard to do in our, in our channel. <laughs> and, we, and we've been looking for another best practice story. So how many proposals equal life insurance solutions sounds like one of the metrics that we should all be leaning towards. And I actually like to call it protection needs rather than life insurance. Great job, Jim. Kyle, again, uh, how's business going? We said May of 2021 is one of the best months What's going on at your organization? Well, let me just oh. add, because Kyle is actually a producing manager. So you have your own book. So you need mm. to keep us honest from a feet on the street standpoint, right? Because you're where the rubber meets the road. So give us your perspective on that. Listening to Jim talk, I feel like my program is where his program was several years ago. So I'm striving to get to that level. I think the second half of the year is going to be strong. Just like everybody else, I don't see anything that's going to affect the market. You know, if they do rise interest rates, you know, there could be some changes there, but I just, I hate to fall in line with everybody else's optimism, but I feel the same way. It's interesting also what Jim said is because all we've been focused on is managed money. And fortunately, the broker dealer we clear through, they have a system set up perfectly for that. But what Jim mentioned is something because we've gone away from transactional business or tried to and tried to go into more of managed money. But what happens is you forget about some of the transactional items that help the clients with their needs, like long-term care or life insurance. So it's interesting you point that out because all this focus on managed money, it you lose your focus on some of the other things uh, that are transactional but are positive for the client. Production trends-wise, things are normalizing. And so we're starting to see more referrals. We have more events planned now, you know, client events. So there's much more offense going on, you know, like there was before COVID. Let's talk about that offense, Bob, if you don't mind. I, I want to shoot the next question out to the group. Let's do it. All right. So from an offensive perspective, as you guys know, and as our listeners know, one of the things that we do is not only watch the trends, but we collect a lot of data coming out of our channel. And when you look at the data for as long as we do, and it's been years and years and years, and you see programs that are standing out because of their productivity, you get curious and you say, well, what are they doing differently? What's moving the needle, right? So one of the things we try and keep our fingers on the pulse of are the strategic initiatives that are making a difference in the top quartile, top decile programs, whatever it might be, right? So I'm going to name some of those strategic initiatives that we see out there that are working. And you guys tell us if any of these initiatives ring true for you guys that you're focused on or other initiatives that may be moving the needle for you, but just give us your overview. So here, I'll just name four of them that we see that seem to really be making a difference. One is client segmentation mapped to tier delivery. And what I mean by that is as you segment your client base, you want to have the appropriate sales channel focused on that segment of clients, right? So associate advisors are not going to be focusing on this ideally on the same segments of clients that your wealth advisors would be, right? If you have second story book-based advisors. So that's one client segmentation mapped to delivery systems. And one of the trends we're seeing in delivery systems are remote advisors too. So let us know if you're doing remote advisors as part of your tiered one. Second is advisor book optimization, right? We all know that 
generally speaking, advisors in the bank and credit union channel have way too many clients in their book and they're over-serving the ones on the low end of the book and underserving the ones on the high end of their book. And they're not dealing with the majority of any of their clients' assets, which is not the way it should be, right? So optimizing advisors' books, less clients in the book. That's two. Three, an increase in financial planning. Jim, you already mentioned that. So that is something clearly we're seeing across the industry that seems to be making a difference. So give us any insights on what you're doing in that regard. And the last one that I'll mention is the focus on building relationships inside the organization to foster cross-departmental business opportunities. So that's different than working the branch. I'm talking about working the bank, right? Getting to know loan officers and business lenders, et cetera. So you have high quality back and forth referral flow. But that involves, if you're an advisor, really building trust with those people that are somewhat hesitant to give up their clients because they don't want you screwing it up, right? So to speak, because there are those territorial things. But anyway, so those are the four things we see that if you're effective with any of them, it moves the needle. If you're effective with all of them, it really moves the needle. So Pete, kick us off. How does that resonate with you and what you're seeing and doing in your program? So I would say, check, 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 check. We're, we're doing all those things or we're trying. All right. I think, everybody, I think everybody is. And that's the great thing about our industry. I think we're all evolving, maybe not at the same pace, but certainly at the same mind space. You know, we're all moving in that direction. I think we're the one overlay on top of all those is the sales process. And really, to, more to Jim's point, the metrics, but what's the experience we're really trying to deliver in each of those segments? And I think we've come from a place where we're all trying to just serve as many customers as we can, the best way we know how. Sometimes you have advisors that run into multiple segments in a given day. We're trying to, and we have successfully aligned a segment of our advisors against the affluent space. And that's been very successful. So, you know, not so much intentional and mass affluent. We do have a RAA space that we focus on in the high net worth and ultra high net worth, but we've really tried to put an emphasis on, on affluent. And we've seen our average ticket size improve. We've seen the product penetration improve. We've seen share of wallet improve. And I think our institution, you know, Citizens Bank has gotten comfortable with the fact that we have put advisors against that channel. We, I did forget to mention earlier the virtual FA. So we have brought some virtual FAs into the mix, trying to layer them in to those branches where we have more of an affluent focus and then the mass affluent opportunities we're trying to send to that virtual channel. The goal is we want to help customers save their money. We want to help them spend their money. I think income planning is still something we're not very good at. We got to get better at. We got to help customers protect their money, as Jim and Kyle talked about, and we've got to help customers transfer those assets at the appropriate time and get those clients into the right segments as they evolve so that maybe our trust department or our high net worth segment is actually helping those customers when we get to that level. Segmentation is critical. Book optimization is a subset of that. If you can start to get those advisors, and we've done a little bit of that that sort of phase two with the affluent segment is, okay, now that you're getting really good at working with affluent customers, now you can kind of peel back and say, you know, do you really want 250 mass affluent customers in that book when you could really be doing financial planning and going deeper with those customers? We try to look at an ROA metric, which is hard, especially when the market's moving around to keep that ROA measurement consistent, but you know that really helps advisors better understand what they are doing with the book of business and if they're rowing in the right direction or not. And I think that's that's helped our managers certainly with recruiting, 
and with conversations with advisors and helping them get more comfortable working in a certain segment. That senior space that we talked about, the upstairs advisors, they've all gone through that. And we've seen their business consistently grow year over year as they introduce new ideas and new concepts to those same customers. So if you have 250 really good affluent customers, you're going to continue to go back to them with new ideas and new solutions. And that just helps you deepen with those customers. And I think some of our advisors are starting to see that, that that is part of the evolution or the career path. And if they get really good at working with affluent clients, maybe they can take their game to another level, but they got to get good at planning. And that is the missing piece. I think, you know, we're all good at asset allocation, sort of doing one module at a time. And, you know, we've been thinking about, can we bring some support into the system to help with that QC of a plan, really taking a look at the plan and helping the advisor go through the modules and pointing out areas where they can go back and maybe ask two or three other questions to start those conversations. I think advisors just get stuck with, I go back to what I know and what's easy. And I'd like to talk about long-term care, but I don't want to get stumped. And maybe a planning resource, we don't have that today. We have some dedicated coaches around planning, but we don't really have a planning desk. And I think that may be the area that you start to get folks more comfortable with the conversation with the customer, especially when they're delivering those plans. I want to backtrack to one of the things you said early on that just totally makes sense to me. And that's your focus on the sales process and the customer experience, especially relative to the different segments, right? Mm Because that customer experience has to be different per segment. And the sales process often gets ignored and left up to each individual advisor. So it ends up being all over the place. There's not a consistent experience when you're working with citizens, right? If you Mm -hmm. don't focus on the process for everybody. So my bottom line with the sales process is to me, one of the most important things that you should be focusing on if you're an advisor. And that is this, you got to ask yourself, what is your product, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an advisor, what is your product? And clearly your product are not advisory accounts. They're not annuities. It's not long-term care. Those are somebody else's products. Those are just your tools they're mm-hmm. using to help your advisor. So what is your product? Well, you can say it's advice. That's getting closer, but advice is part of your product. Your product, very simply, your product is your process. That is it, period. Right. That is your whole product. That is your only ability to differentiate. That is your only ability to, to define what you are versus everybody else. And not enough advisors spend enough time focusing on their process, not enough programs spend enough time focusing on the process as it relates to the client experience. Because if we think about it from a consumer standpoint, anytime we've been unexpectedly wowed by some type of retail experience, whatever that might be, that wow was probably not about the product. It was about the customer experience. And you, and then you talk about it after the fact and you refer other friends and everything else. Well, it's the same thing for advisors. How do you create that wow experience is the most important question you can ask if you're a program or if you're an advisor and it has not gotten enough attention and good for you, Pete, for focusing on that. I think that's, that's critical. So sorry to to get on my soapbox, but that's definitely a passion point for me. (laughs) Uh, Kyle, let me pass it back to you because you're an advisor as well. And then Jim, I'd like to hear from you as well. But uh, how, what are your thoughts on some of those strategic initiatives and and the stuff that we just discussed with Pete? I just wrote down your little phrase and stuck it on my computer because your process is your product. And that's just so well put because 
just like Pete, we're doing all these things. You know, client segmentation. The advisors, three years ago, we were a transactional program that was recruiting transactional producers. They were not doing financial planning. Sometimes they'd have good months. Sometimes they'd have bad months. But it was always kind of the same, you know, annuities, mutual funds, you know, UITs, you know, just products. It was no, really no process. Yep. And so we've gone through that, that transformation because of the broker dealer we're with. That's honestly the truth. We've kind of gone from a transactional program to more, we're trying to do more fee-based. But the advisors that we have successfully recruited that have really good reoccurring revenue, their experience is automated by now at this point. Not to say it wasn't easy to, to do, but it's somewhat automated because of CRM. They know what's going to happen you know, next month, the next quarter. And it makes their experience where you can't leave them. What they provide is you, you don't really care about the products that you're in. You just care that they know everything about you. You've gone through the financial planning. You've gone through all those steps. And then they have a really good service model that follows up with that. One of the biggest pushbacks I get from transactional producers is when I do a fee-based account, all I ever get asked about is the fee. And the reason that's all you get asked about is because you have no planning, you have no process, you haven't segmented your book, you have a bad experience for your clients. That's the reason. The client segmentation piece is one of the top priorities we have to figure out who's your best clients. How many clients do you have between the age of 70 and 80? How many clients do you have between the age of 40 and 50? You need to be able to know those numbers. Booked op optimization. So just like you mentioned, being a bank producer, you end up with sometimes small accounts. And it's hard to say no to some of those. Sometimes you have to take them on just because of the relationship where you got the referral came from. However, you can make your life quite a bit easier by spending time with them at the very beginning uh, and, and kind of going back to that, that process giving them a good experience, making sure they're all online, making sure they can access their account. Now there's a small account solution at Ameriprise. So now we can put somebody in a fee-based account. It doesn't have to have $25,000 as a minimum. So the other thing I was going to say about booked optimization is the good advisors that are actually working on their business and changing, because you have to change in this industry. You can't do the same things you were doing in the 90s, early 2000s. Right. Uh, those advisors they are going back and looking at their book and they are going back and looking at clients that maybe bought an annuity, one annuity or bought maybe an A share mutual fund. Going back and looking at that and saying, you know, does this client need planning? Are they better off in a managed account, you know, an SMA that has the same exact fee structure as that mutual fund might have, but now I'm going to incorporate something that increases their experience. And so there's, you know, what we kind of call dead assets on a lot of these bank programs, these bank advisors books, and the good advisors are going back through that and finding opportunity. The increase in financial planning, three years ago, this program had one certified financial planner. Today, out of the 18, we have eight. And so that has been a major focus, especially for those we are recruiting to this program. If you're not doing financial planning, you're probably not their primary advisor, or you won't be for long. Right. You know, and then the last question there was a focusing on lenders or, or business development officers and those, you know, a lot of times we've gotten referrals from the retail staff. A lot of times, you know, a majority of the referrals come from branch managers, tellers, you know, very front facing retail bankers, which is great. It's fine. However, the top 
of our customer base, they're dealing with one of our lenders or they're dealing with one of our business development officers. And that's been an area that we've struggled in. I don't know if it's just us recruiting higher caliber of advisor, but now that we're getting more CFPs, we have more advisors that are doing client segmentation. The top four or five of my advisors, they're all doing these things really well. And so it just seems like they're getting so much more buy-in from those bankers that previously didn't support us. And maybe it's because of the perception of uh, somebody that's a CFP that's doing fee-based business is a smarter advisor than, than somebody that's selling mutual funds and annuities. I don't know what it exactly is, but we're starting to see more activity from, from bankers that normally would be more closed off. I'll tell you what it is, right? If you're just looking at CD lists and flipping them into annuities, the bankers are not going to have much respect for that because you're a salesperson, right? But if you're a relationship person, if you are a trusted advisor to the degree that that is the professional position, you get more respect internally and it gets recognized, right? So there are two things you said that I want to key off of. One is, you know, not being the primary advisor. Well, you know, I just said trusted advisor. What is a trusted advisor? I can go into a long definition, but there's one metric that will tell you whether you're a trusted advisor or not. And that is if you're dealing with the majority of your client's investable assets, period. If you are, you're a trusted advisor. If you're not, you're an afterthought. And Kyle, like you said, some other advisor is going to end up taking the rest of those assets away anyway. So you're sunk. So how do you become a trusted advisor? Well, that's the subject for another podcast, but I think most of you know the answer to that. So that's the one thing you said that I think rings true. The other is working the book. And man, have we ignored that for too long. What's an easier way to grow assets, to try and find new clients or to get more from your existing clients? The answer to that is obvious. And we've ignored getting more assets from existing clients for so long, and it's inexcusable, right? And the other thing that's inexcusable is that our average penetration rate into our households of our institutions is 4 or 5%. That's inexcusable. We need to get better working within our institutions, cross-departmentally, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're going in the right direction, and I love some of the things that I'm hearing from you guys because it's just reinforcing that we're going in the right direction and we're learning the good lessons. So that's awesome. All right, Jim, let me pass it to you to comment on some of that great stuff that Pete and Kyle just commented on. Yeah, and just to add to Pete and Kyle, and Kyle's comment about being a transaction-oriented organization several years ago is exactly where we were too. And to make some changes, it's more than just incentive plans. It's, it's behavioral changes. It's mindset changes. It's relationship type of offerings. Cultural lot, changes, right? Yet you're changing culture. your culture. Yeah. You got to have cultural changes and you got to have a lot of support from your bank partners to make those changes too. That's right. really key. And so you want to provide your advisors with that type of thought process and then provide them with a lot of training and support and field support because you could provide them with all the tools and you could do, you know, Zoom calls and do training programs and so on. But what I found that really helped drive our business that way was to bring field support out there. So I was fortunate to bring on a head of our financial planning division. So financial planning came under me, centralized and I was able to relocate somebody that used to work for me in a, a couple of lives ago and move him from the West Coast over to New Orleans. And he does a lot of great field trading. In fact, he's a subject matter expert in insurance, managed money, financial planning based on his background. 
And so we headed the financial planning division. We did a lot of training. We did a lot of support work, doing joint calls, helping people get over that process. In addition to that, we brought in a third-party consultant, someone highly regarded in the industry to provide education on what you just called the process, because it is about the process, right? And I agree with your passion about it. And I also agree that process is a little bit different for wealth teams versus or individual advisors in the field. So we had specialized type customized training for advisors and it helped validate and reinforce what we're trying to do in terms of build relationships through a financial planning process with our customers. So that really helped out a lot and helped engage our entire team toward that. And so with that, we started financial planning. We started the client segmentation. We have what we call One Wealth with our high net worth clients. And with them, we have nine senior investment consultants that work with a team for high net worth private banking clients, a private bankers there, a trust advisor, portfolio manager at times, and a wealth advisor who's a certified financial planner. And that's all supported by the centralized financial planning division. We also have financial advisors in the branches that work with the mass market as well as some mass affluent. But then we also realized quickly that we have this group of people that there may not be enough opportunities to be part of a well team. Having said that, they're superior in building relationships. And they've demonstrated that by the activity that they're doing with managed money, life insurance, and financial planning. So we took a group of them and made them senior financial advisors. So they're hybrid. They still work in the branches, but now for their high net worth clients, they could bring in a private banker. They could bring in a trust advisor or wealth advisor when appropriate. And that's one area that's really exploded for us. I mean, we've gone from a handful. Now we have 23 of these senior financial advisors, and they're driving a ton of business, and their productivity has really gone up as we get the whole, as you said, trust advisor relationship with that customer by bringing in additional team members like the private banker for lending expertise and other areas. So we've been able to expand them because you know, you have your hubs and your well teams, but they're mostly centered in your major locations, your major cities. They may not be in some of the rural markets and other areas that are remotely where you may have some strong advisors that could definitely work that marketplace. So we've done that from a client segmentation and that's working and that's continuing to evolve. Our senior ICs in the well team are still our top producers in many ways. And they're doing a lot of the high end areas. I mean, we're doing things like premium finance and life insurance deals that we never did before. We're focused on business exit planning that we look forward to doing more business with in 2022. So these are areas that we really haven't explored that we think we're going to get to as we further define this client segment. In 2022, we're going to do a little bit more work on the lower segment. You know, a lot of people are doing, a lot of institutions are doing remote call centers and hybrid and robo type opportunities. We started that, but during the pandemic, I sort of folded that all down and said, you know what, we'll take care of this in another year. So that's a 2022 project in terms of client segmentation. The last comment I'll make, you mentioned the opportunity in, in the financial centers as well as or other bank partners, mortgages, and, and other lenders. In order to be successful in that, you really need to have bank support out there. And our bank realized that we're only in single digits overall in wealth management in terms of what we have in household penetration in the bank. And there's clearly a lot of opportunity to do more. 
And so from a a high level going downwards, there's been a goal set up that we want to increase that business by 40%. So we need to grow more penetration in that marketplace. One area that we've done from the investment side of the business to help that out, and we launched this a couple of years ago when I moved the broker dealer under the Federal Reserve and FRB holding company, is a underwriting business where we do co-manager underwriting activity for some of our commercial and wholesale banks, because we have a very, very strong commercial side of the business. And it's an easy way to help round that relationship up for some of our high net worth versus what you said earlier. I think, Bob, you might have mentioned this or Scott, where a lot of people can't trust giving their top business to a financial advisor yet because they don't want anything to go wrong. Well, this is a business where we're actually providing value-added service and additional revenue. So it's not that hard to get that relationship moving in that direction. So that's helped increase that. But it does take a lot of people working in the same direction to move that needle upwards. You know, it's cool, Jim, about one of the things that you just mentioned. There are a lot of things that are cool, but there's a significant side benefit to the way that you are layering your advisor force right and you you know you talked about senior advisors that are hybrid between a branch-based advisor and a wealth advisor that fringe benefit is the career path that you're building right and you can leverage that career path because that's a vision of where you can go if you're good in the organization right you can leverage that career path not only to motivate existing advisors that may be on the front end of that career path. But from a recruiting standpoint, if you position that well, you can even brand a career path, right? Literally, that's a really great marketing tool for recruiting. It's a good marketing tool for motivating people inside the organization for retention, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great fringe benefit to what you're doing. And I love that concept of a hybrid advisor on their way up, right? So that's cool. Well, it's really helped, Scott, to that point in terms of career pathing, because we have a lot of our branch FAs really striving to get to that position. The other thing that you notice, too, is for retention purposes, there are times when you start siloing a business and say you can only work here with high net worth, and you have to give those customers over to that team in order to go. We all know advisors have two things that they're always on top of their mind. One is compensation. The other is control. Control and compensation, right? And and they don't want to feel like they're the junior varsity. And you also know that you don't want them to feel that way because they've got great talent. You just don't have room for them yet. Right. And that's where we started to move this into a value-added role for the company. Yeah. Good for you. That's great stuff. And I know Bob has a question that digs into the trusted advisor concept a little bit more. So, Bob, let me hand it back over to you. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. We often say that the ultimate goal of an advisor should be to become a trusted advisor as measured by how much of their client's assets you're really managing. We also often look at it as the bank is where we all start our first financial relationship. Our first paycheck is usually cashed in a bank. So how do we go from being the first and primary financial organization that anyone enters into with that first paycheck to almost like an afterthought? And include me in that too, because if I really look at it, 75% of my assets are not in my primary bank. And I tell you, my first paycheck from McDonald's was cashed at a bank (laughs) so many years ago. But Kyle, what do you think about that? How do we maintain that relationship that starts probably when they're 18 or 20 and just let it grow to become that primary financial institution? We got to go away from the historical way of being a 
transactional bank broker to more of a financial planner with a fiduciary, you know, the fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for that customer. I myself, you know, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that we had one CFP and now we have eight. Well, one of those was me. So I set for my CFP in March and I can tell you that being a financial advisor now for 11 years, the first seven years of doing business, I had no idea about how much more I could help a customer. And so I really have personally, you know, drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, with if you actually follow the financial planning process, the, the products that, to help fill gaps, uh, that's all secondary. You know, the plan is the most important piece. And so if advisors are not spending time to work on their business to change where they were maybe in the, in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, now we need to have goals, you know, published online. We need advisors to have a really good website because that's the front door to your business. Everybody's Googling you before you have an appointment. You need to be able to have everybody online to where it's easy to do business with you. Everything can be done, you know, e-signature. They can literally be having a glass of wine with their wife on a Saturday after they put the kids down and pull up their app and see if they're on track to meet their goals. You know, that's what you've got to do if you're a bank advisor and you want to be the primary trusted advisor. And some of my advisors right now are struggling with that. And they're going to continue to struggle because the good advisors are making that client experience so positive that they'll gain more assets and they won't lose any assets. That's it. That's what I think. No, and I absolutely agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. But if we go back to my earlier point also, Pete, maybe you can take this part of the question. You know, we start out with this bank account and that meets one of the six core banking needs. That's your savings, right? And, and maybe a credit need. How do we get that relationship to grow and to be the majority of the assets? Yeah, so we got to start early, right? And we can't have financial advisors working with 20-year-olds that are coming in and cashing their first paycheck, unfortunately. But you could over time, and you got to capture their attention and imagination when they are 20. You know, We have a, a digital offering for investments and savings called Save and Grow, and it's a collaboration on the deposit side. So you can actually combine your savings account and your investment account, your digital investment account into one statement. And it's connected online banking. So you can move money back and forth between checking savings and investments. But the actual cash part of your investment sits on the bank side in a savings account. And so you can do 2,500 bucks and you can add as you go, just like we used to do in the day when you know, we're selling mutual funds to folks on a PIP basis. I mean, it's the same idea, but you're taking that, sweeping that money right out of their checking account or savings account right into that investment. And then the goal is when that account gets to a certain level, you automatically or systematically, I guess, more, more so than automatically, you systematically migrate that relationship to an advisor. And then the advisor introduces themselves and takes over that relationship and hopefully at that point, demonstrates that value, right? And then you either stay in the robo-solution or you move to a full-fledged fee-based solution. And we just haven't been good at that. We, we, you know, we're jumping in and stuff. You know, our average customer is 60 plus and we're, you know, we're jumping in on people when they've already got, uh, you know, relationships. We're trying to move money over. We're not really starting at the ground floor. And so I think we're trying to, we're trying to think that way. You know, we need to, we need to tailor, again, it goes back to segmentation, right? So You've got to be able to tailor your offerings to not, you know, one size fits all. You need to have that offer for the the, the mass market or pre-mass market emerging uh, affluent type of customer that 
they're going to get, you know, again, capture their attention and keep them interested until the point where they actually have 25,000 or 50,000 or what have you. And, and then you can get, you know, someone else involved. And I think that's the point that we've been missing. And I think you're right on target with that, and especially using digital, because digital is obviously also a very cost-effective way to meet the needs of that customer who not necessarily is the most cost-efficient client for the organization. Right. Jim, why don't you bring it home with us? And I know your answer is going to be all about financial planning because you do like, I don't know, thousands a month, but how are you going to get this trusted advisor concept through? So we talked about financial planning, as you just mentioned again, but- The key area, in addition to that, is the data aggregator. You have to have a linked, integrated, holistic plan. And the way to do that and get engagement is to have a very, very strong client portal, have data aggregation, have that flow right into the plan, have the conversation between the advisor and the customer be about all their assets, not just what you have. Because as you said earlier, we may only have 20, 30% of their funds. But what about their 401k at XYZ company? Well, that's going to be part of the data aggregator. And from the data aggregator, once clients get engaged, they're looking at this and they're starting to populate it with all their accounts, whether it's a loan or a mortgage or or a bank account, XYZ or a brokerage account here or there. Pretty soon you're going to have access to all that. And we all know someday with a lot of our customers, there's going to be a point in life where they're going to want to consolidate. And they're going to consolidate with that organization that has those assets, that has that relationship with that customer. So that's the one area that I really think that we could continue to grow. I mean, we may be in the single digits or maybe in the 20% of aggregation of our plans today, but we got to get to 50% and 60 and 70% in this area because that's when you start really doing and becoming that trusted advisor. The second part to become a trusted advisor is to be more than just the investment person. As I said earlier, you know, bring your team approach in there. Do the loans, do the lending, do everything for that customer. You become that person. So whatever happens in their life, they're going to go to you. You're that quarterback. You're that relationship manager. You're the go-to person for all their needs. So that's what's going to happen as you start building out that relationship. And then the last thing that we could do is provide ideas, right? And this is not where we are today, but where we are as an organization going to be someday with technology. And that's going to be able to utilize, and we're working on this right now, with structured data, meaning data that we have. We all know banks have all the data in the world, but how do we use that data? How do we know the profitability of every single household that we have? How do we utilize things? Well, we're going to be using Einstein and Salesforce very shortly to be able to utilize structured data, data that we have today on our customers those that are appropriate to be in there, whether it's bank data, investment data, trust data, et cetera, whatever is appropriate will be in there through the financial planning process. Utilizing Einstein, you'll be able to provide next best solutions and next best ideas to your customers. That's going to be phenomenal. So when you have that conversation with the customer, you're thinking like Amazon is today with all the customers and why we end up buying stuff we don't need. Okay, It's that kind of conversation that's going to occur someday but we're going to really provide additional value. We're doing that with things today without structured data or without properly using AI. We know that estate planning is a big issue, so we do seminars on that, given the tax law proposals. Someday we'll be able to do this and then unstructured data. Well, you'll be able to really figure out what the next best item is for that customer in their life and their lifestyle. 
So I'm looking forward to that. I think that's the future of our business. Oh, and a disclaimer here. Jim was saying that Amazon says buy stuff we don't need. Not Jim saying that. Okay, <laughs> a disclaimer there. Thanks so much, guys, for that. Uh, the contributions to that last question. Hey, Scott, I think you want to bring us home. Yeah, there's some great comments there. So let me just make a few wrap-up thoughts. This whole trusted advisor concept, I'm going to wrap it together with the process is your product if you're an advisor, right? So if you look at that, if you look at that process, which is your product, and then think about or ask yourself the question, well, how can I create a process that helps me become the trusted advisor? There are a couple things that come out as answers, but the most important thing is if you think about the process, is the discovery phase of your process. That is by far the most important part of the process. And what does that mean? Well, one, I know most advisors out there don't spend enough time honing and perfecting the discovery process. They take it for granted, one. And organizations don't do enough to standardize the most important parts of the discovery process. They leave it up to each advisor, which is a huge mistake, right? It is the most important part. So what is the discovery process meant to do? To completely understand your clients and what are the emotional things that drive their financial decisions? Because that's the bottom line, right? They're not making financial decisions based on their assets, which is what most advisors focus on in the discovery process. They're making their investment decisions based on emotions. What does it mean to take care of loved ones? Are they caring for elderly parents at the same time trying to put kids through college? What is their goal in life? You know, those types of emotional drivers have to be embedded in the discovery process, pulling those things out, right? So trusted advisor, process is your product, focus on the discovery phase of the process. One, two, and this is the last comment I'll make before we wrap it up. And this is Bob, back to your point where everybody starts with all their assets in a bank and the wealthier somebody gets, they seep out of a bank and they go elsewhere. They go to the wirehouses, they go to the fidelities, they go to wherever. Why? We're letting that happen, which is why our penetration rates suck, right? Well, it's because we're culturally not focused on the holistically on the six core needs that everybody has, no matter how wealthy you are, you're going to have no more than six core needs, right? So you know, we talked about the savings and liquidity is one, credit is two, income now, short-term, the shorter-term needs, income later, the retirement-oriented needs typically, protection, and legacy. So if we as an organization build a culture that says, what we do for our clients is we help them with those six core needs, and for every client, we should be servicing as many of those needs as possible, and we should structure our whole compensation system, our whole sell system, our CRM system, and everything in alignment with those six core needs, then we'll get better at keeping assets in-house. They won't seep out as people get wealthier. And, and that's it, right? It's, it's fairly simple. Those six core needs are what, what you have to focus on. Makes sense to me. Yep. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap this up. This is this has been a, ver a, a very good discussion, and I appreciate the uh, the input that that all of you have made. I, I do want to give a shout out, Kyle. You you made several mentions of how effectively your broker dealer has uh, enabled you to hit some of your objectives, and your broker dealer is Ameriprise. They're also the sponsor of the BISA Trendwatch podcast. So. I thought it appropriate to give a special shout out 
to Ameriprise, and I'm glad to hear that they're doing a good job for you, Kyle. So, so yay. <laughs> um, all right. So thank you again, all of you. Uh, great discussion. Uh, always love talking to thought leaders and appreciate your input. So Bob, wrap it up for us. Absolutely. And to our listeners out there, I know many of you might be driving. So here's the time where you have to pull onto the side of the road, open up the glove compartment, get a pad and write these three things down that I wrote down during this podcast. Number one, financial planning leads to protection needs solved. That's number one. Number two, don't work the branch only, work the bank. That's number two. And number three, use digital engagement to start the process to become a trusted advisor. All right, so here we are again at the end of yet another BISA Trend Watch. Again, I'd like to thank our panel and also a thank you, as Scott mentioned, to Ameriprise and Chris Milton, who is a sponsor of these podcasts. Thanks to Janet Capaletti of Stassen's Partners in Bank Channel Research. She is our research guru and gives us all of the data that we need to get this thing going. Jeff Hartney for his help in organizing this month's podcast and Kat Seifert and Katie Stokes as well, who are behind the scenes at the BISA. Couple of events coming up from the BISA. We're all opened and, and ready for the Regulatory and Compliance Summit in November. Go check the BISANet.org website for that. Also the CEO retreat. And again, the annual is gonna be in February of next year. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and all of our other podcasts, Industry Leadership and Success and Untangling FinTech. So I think that about wraps it up. If I'm missing anything, Scott, you are not. That was comprehensive. Okay. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll be back again next month. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys again. See you next month. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. And thanks again to Pete Dunlap of Citizens Bank, Jim Fujinaga of Hancock Whitney, and Kyle Stroud of Sentinel Bank, for sharing their insights. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.